there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Captain Thomas Musgrave took a deep drag on his cigarette as he walked the length of his ship the Grafton. The sea was calm, a black mirror. The sails hung limp in want of wind. Having spent half of his life at sea, Musgrave knew that still waters were a portent of danger. His suspicions were confirmed by the dropping barometer. A storm was on its way. They had only been at sea for two days. At first, A strong wind propelled the Grafton out from the Sydney Harbor to the open ocean. But now, just after midnight, on November 14, 1863, they were dead in the water, and the clouds continued to swell into rolling black masses. Musgrave knew he'd face capricious weather conditions when he charted this journey. The Grafton sailed through the Antarctic Convergence, where the icy Arctic waters met the warmer waters of the subarctic, leading to spontaneous, raging storms that produced mile-high waves. But it was these dangerous conditions that gave the captain hope that his journey to Campbell Island would be a success. He was certain that he would find riches beyond his imagination, kept out of reach from lesser men if he survived the journey. Plenty of ships had wrecked on the rocky reefs surrounding the island. Knowing this, he had taken one precaution. Musgrave made his uncle, the benefactor for the voyage, promise to send a search party if the Grafton didn't return after four months. But as Musgrave watched the dark clouds multiply on the horizon, He wondered if four months was too generous. He wondered if they'd even survive the night. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our first episode on Captain Thomas Musgrave and the wreck of the Grafton in January of 1864. This week, we'll look at the series of misfortunes that left the crew stranded on an island. 
Next week, we'll follow their desperate fight to survive with no way to contact civilization. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise, so head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Thomas Musgrave's uncle owned a drapery shop in Sydney, Australia, with his business partner, Charles Sarpy. In 1863, they received a tip about the fortunes to be found on Campbell Island. It was allegedly ripe with argentiferous tin, just waiting to be mined. Argentiferous describes any base metal that's infused with silver compounds. Silver can be extracted from the ore through a process called cupellation. Silver's melting point is very high, nearly 1800 degrees Fahrenheit while tin melts at only 450 degrees. Through cupellation, the tin is burned off until only silver remains. In addition, Campbell Island was a breeding ground for fur seals. Their hides and the oil derived from their fat represented a small fortune on its own. Between the tin and the seals, Uncle Musgrave and Sarpy would be even wealthier men than they already were. They recruited Musgrave's nephew, Thomas, to captain the treacherous voyage to collect the riches. With the funds they provided, Captain Musgrave chartered a ship, the Grafton, and hired the crew. Sarpy also recruited his friend, Francois Reynal, to act as Musgrave's right hand and to oversee their financial investment. Reynal had spent the last 11 years in the Australian outback prospecting for gold. During that time, he'd nearly died from illness, first dysentery and then ophthalmia. The latter had left him blind for nine days, in so much pain that he'd surrendered his pistol to a friend, afraid that he might turn the gun on himself for relief. After he recovered and regained his sight, Reynal was wary to return to the gold fields, but he was still a treasure hunter. Sarpy's offer to join the Grafton expedition to Campbell Island seemed a much more agreeable alternative. With the funds provided, Musgrave could only afford two additional crewmen and a cook. So he needed a ship that was sturdy enough to face the rough seas, but small enough that it could be sailed by a skeleton crew. The Grafton, a 56-ton schooner, fit the bill. She had one large mainsail and four smaller support sails, which required only a few men to manipulate the riggings. In addition, the Grafton was outfitted to carry 75 tons of cargo. Musgrave hoped to fill every inch of the hold with tin and furs. In the meantime, he stocked four months' worth of provisions. They loaded in 20 casks of fresh water, 300 pounds of ship's bread, and also packed spare canvas and rope in case the sails needed to be repaired. Musgrave was satisfied with all his preparations except the anchor chains. His uncle only gave him enough money to pay for 60 fathoms of chain, or 360 feet, and that had to be split between the two anchors. It was half the length Musgrave would have preferred. It meant the Grafton would have to anchor closer to shore. If one of the anchors slipped, the ship could be pushed by the waves into the reef. 
But with the prize waiting on Campbell Island, Musgrave knew he'd be replaced by another captain if he didn't accept the shorter chain, so he kept his concerns to himself. To crew the Grafton, Musgrave hired 20-year-old George Harris and 28-year-old Alec McLaren, both experienced seamen and prepared for the challenging journey. To reach Campbell Island, they would have to sail through the Antarctic Convergence, an area known for sudden raging storms caused by the meeting of two ocean currents. When the icy waters surrounding Antarctica rapidly cooled the warmer waters of the subantarctic, huge amounts of water vapor were released into the atmosphere, leading to massive storms. Musgrave also hired 28-year-old Henry Forges as the ship's cook. In his autobiography, Francois Reynal described Henry as very ugly. He wrote, this ugliness arose from a disease, a species of leprosy, which had eaten away the most prominent portion of his face, nothing remaining of his nose but a scar. With the ship stocked and the crew hired, the Grafton set sail from Sydney on November 12, 1863. She would first travel 1,500 miles south-southeast, then hook around New Zealand and sail another 600 miles northeast to Campbell Island. As a strong wind pushed them out of the harbor, the captain of the pilot boat guiding the larger schooner shouted, Godspeed, you gentlemen, and take care. But after only two days, the wind vanished and the ship drifted listlessly in the calm open sea. On the horizon, black storm clouds loomed. With no way to propel the boat out of the storm's course, the crew could only wait for the growing hurricane to arrive. On November 18th, the Grafton was pummeled. As Reynal described it in his autobiography, this wind is violent, the sea very heavy, and the sky is literally black. The rain, an icy rain, lashes and smites us. Reynal took his post at the tiller at 11 p.m. that night. He struggled to keep the ship on course against the churning waves, only able to check the compass when it was briefly illuminated by the lightning that cracked through the sky. It was important that he maintained the ship's heading perpendicular to the waves. If the ship turned parallel, it was in danger of being swept away by a tall wave. Then, a particularly violent squall bucked the ship into the air. Reynal was thrown back onto the deck, and the tiller spun out of control, letting the ship loose into the waves. Suddenly, a wall of water broke onto the ship. It set free a stack of giant sandstone ballast weights, sending them tumbling. The block slid to the far side of the deck, and the Grafton leaned sharply to her starboard side. Alec McLaren, one of the crewmen, clambered to wrap his arms around a mast pole to keep from sliding overboard. Reynal scrambled to regain the tiller, struggling to find purchase on the steeply sloped deck. But he eventually reached the wheel and turned the ship out of the waves. The other crewmen rushed to secure the sandstone blocks and rebalance the weight until the ship was fully righted. After this scare, Captain Musgrave took over the tiller. He sent Reynal and the other men below deck to take care of their stocks of provisions, which had been tossed around as much as the crew. Musgrave held his position throughout the night as the storm raged on. 
In the morning, the other men found him soaked to the bone, his lips blue, and his white hands nearly frozen to the metal tiller. They rewarded their captain with a warming shot of brandy. The Grafton finally saw clear skies again on the morning of November 21st. Free of the danger, Musgrave had a chance to reassess their position. He realized that they'd been blown off course about 150 miles. But he wasn't overly concerned about this. It would only add a few days to the journey, and they had more than enough extra provisions. He felt reinvigorated after making it through the brutal storm. They had passed nature's first test. They sailed without incident for the next 12 days, reaching Campbell Island on the morning of December 2nd. They anchored the Grafton a few miles out into the bay, safely away from the rocks. The next morning, Musgrave and Reynal rowed to shore on the ship's small dinghy, leaving the other men behind. As they approached the beach, they couldn't help but notice a distinct absence of fur seals. But they did find signs of fur seals, previous nests and tracks in the sand. Maybe they were just on a different part of the island this time of year. They decided to climb to the highest part of the island. Maybe they'd be able to spot seals from there. They reached the peak by midday and named the summit the Dome. As the men looked out at the view, they couldn't help but appreciate the rugged beauty of the island. They ventured to the edge of the sharp cliff and looked down at the harbor, the blue water pearled with the white caps of crashing waves. But they soon had to accept that their dreams of fur pelts and seal oil riches were just that, dreams. There were no seals to be found. They had been hunted to extinction long ago. And as they'd made the trek to the top of the island, Musgrave and Reynal realized that the majority of the ground was covered in dense shrubbery and low-branched trees. The dried bushes tore at their ankles as they tromped back to the beach, defeated by their discoveries. To mine for argentiferous tin, they would have to clear the land, which they didn't have the proper tools to do efficiently. Each clearing would be time-consuming and a lot of work and they would undoubtedly have to mine in several places before they discovered a pocket of ore. Musgrave and Reynal rode back to the Grafton in silence. One of them would have to tell the crew that the voyage was a failure. Coming up, Captain Musgrave takes a fateful detour on the journey home. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. 
In December of 1863, Captain Thomas Musgrave and his crew sailed the Grafton to Campbell Island in search of fur seals and argentiferous tin, but it was quickly apparent that the promises of riches to be found on the island were a cruel fiction. He instructed his crew to start preparing the ship for the trip back to Sydney. There was no point staying on the island now. But on the morning of December 4th, Francois Reynal woke up feverish. Throughout the day, he only got worse. Whether it was the stress of the journey, the change in climate, or the sudden realization that the entire mission was a fool's errand, Reynal had a relapse of dysentery. There are two types of dysentery, one caused by bacteria and viruses, and the other caused by a parasite. It's likely that Raynal suffered from the latter, commonly called amoebic dysentery, which can lay dormant for years if not properly treated. He first contracted the disease while prospecting in the Australian outback in the years prior. It's likely that some lingering parasites were still in his body, and the stress of the journey caused them to resurface. For the next three weeks, he was bedridden, often delirious from a high fever. His condition was so dire, Musgrave cleared a patch of ground and dug a grave for him on the island. The Grafton remained docked at Campbell Island for the duration of Raynal's illness. Musgrave was too concerned that he wouldn't survive the journey. During that time, he and the other crewmen continued to scout the island, searching for any sign of a tin mine. They found none. Their continued fruitless efforts only aggravated Musgrave's frustrations. He'd promised his wife and daughter a fortune, and now he was returning empty-handed. By the time Raynal was recovered enough to sail, Musgrave had convinced himself of a way to salvage the trip. On their path back to Sydney, they would pass right by Auckland Island, another well-known fur seal breeding ground. On December 29th, 1863, the Grafton set sail once again, renewed with purpose. They spotted Auckland Island on the horizon late the next day, but they kept their distance. Musgrave could tell that another storm was on its way and didn't want to bring the ship too close to the rocky shore. The rain arrived the next morning. Raynal wrote in his autobiography, I have never seen a sea so agitated. It looks as if it were boiling and heaves around us in every direction. But the ship weathered the squall without incident, and it abated by the morning of January 1st, 1864, New Year's Day. Raynal, who had been too weak to leave his bed for nearly a month now, made his way to the deck to feel the warm sunshine and the delicious breeze on his face. And even more rewarding, when Musgrave scanned the beach of Auckland Island with his telescope, he spotted dozens of seals sunning on the rocks. It wasn't all for nothing. The closer they got to the island, the more seals swam around their boat, curiously inspecting their arrival. The crewmen quickly prepared to drop the anchor, energized by the turn in fortune. But their celebrations were premature. When they reached the inlet of the harbor that afternoon, they realized there wasn't a safe place to dock. The rocky reefs surrounding Auckland Island stretched much farther into the bay than they did at Campbell Island. To be clear of the danger, Musgrave had to stay in deeper water. 
but at that depth, the 180-foot anchor chains wouldn't reach the seafloor. For hours, the Grafton circled the island, trying to find a safe dock in shallow enough water. The longer they searched, the more their excitement vanished. Eventually, it grew dark, and they were still without luck. To make matters worse, the wind died. Then, the barometer started to fall. They were in for another storm. Musgrave decided to sail as close to shore as he dared and drop the anchor. It was better to be anchored against the waves in a precarious position than accidentally blown into the rocky shore by the storm. It started to rain in earnest that night and continued into the next day, January 2nd. The Grafton was buffeted by violent winds and constant rain. Musgrave wrote in his captain's log, There is a considerable swell running, and the ship has been jerking and straining at her chains all day. I expect them to part every moment. At seven o'clock that night, a particularly savage gust of wind knocked into the ship, and the chain on the starboard anchor snapped. Without its weight, the port anchor started to drag, and the ship drifted towards the shore. Musgrave quickly realized that it was only a matter of time before the waves pushed the Grafton into the waiting rocks. As Reynal described, it was at midnight that we felt the first shock. It was slight, but those which succeeded became stronger and stronger as we advanced towards the rocks. Each new collision struck home to our hearts. It was the most indubitable announcement of the melancholy fate reserved for us. The Grafton was battered with wave after wave until, at 2.15 a.m., the keel snapped off from the bottom of the hull. Water immediately rushed in. As the ship began to tilt from the weight of the flood, Captain Musgrave ordered the crew to salvage as many provisions as possible. They gathered the supplies at the highest point of the deck, secured them with rope, and covered them with the canvas of the mainsail. Then, the five men crawled under the canvas themselves, looking for relief from the continued rain. They sat, numb, waiting for daylight. When the sun rose, Musgrave assessed their situation. The Grafton was wrecked about 60 yards from the shore, perched on the rocky reef. The rain hadn't let up, and the sea churned. It was too dangerous to try to swim the distance to shore. Luckily, the 13-foot dinghy boat made it through the crash unscathed. It was strung up with rope to the mast, away from the destruction. They quickly untied it and set it down in the water. Then they loaded it with salvaged provisions. Because it was their only safe passage to and from the shore, Musgrave didn't want to risk rowing the dinghy through the rough waves but he also knew it was too risky to wait on the wreckage for the weather to clear. Using a few ropes and some iron rings, the crew set up a dual pulley system. They connected one pulley between the Grafton and the dinghy. Then they climbed in on top of the supplies and carefully navigated out away from the wreck. To set up the second pulley connecting the dinghy to the shore, one of the crewmen had to swim the remaining distance to the beach and find something to attach the rope to. 
28-year-old Alec McLaren grew up in Norway, swimming in the icy fjord waters. He volunteered to swim to shore through the perilous waves. Reynal wrote, This was a moment of terrible anxiety, for our safety wholly depended on Alec's strength and skill. The sea tumbled and boiled around him, yet we could see that he never lost his presence of mind. Instead of trying to swim the remaining 30 yards to shore in one go, Alec swam only a few feet to a large rock. He clung to it, waiting for a break in the waves, then swam to another safe purchase. Rock by rock, he made his way to the shore. Then he found a tree on the beach and tied up the pulley. The men went to work transporting the supplies to shore. Piece by piece, they tied the provisions to the pulley with rope and sent them across the water to Alec. On the beach, he fashioned a tent from one of the sails and stacked everything underneath, out of the rain. When it was the men's turn to follow the supplies, Reynal was still too weak from his dysentery bout to hold his own weight on the rope, so Musgrave tied Reynal to his back and carried him across. With the weight of two men, the rope dipped dangerously close to the surf, waves splashing in their faces. In the last few yards, Musgrave's arms began to shake. He called out to Alec. He couldn't hold on anymore. The Norwegian rushed out into the surf and dragged them the rest of the way. The other crewmen, George Harris and Henry Forges, followed in the same fashion. They'd survived the shipwreck. For now. They left the dinghy tied to the pulleys, hopeful that they would be able to recover more items from the ship once the weather subsided. In the meantime, they took refuge under the mainsail tent with their stock of supplies. 100 pounds of ship's bread, 50 pounds of flour, 2 pounds of tea, 3 pounds of coffee, 12 pounds of sugar, 30 pounds of salted beef and pork, and some spices to flavor it with, mustard and pepper. In addition, they'd managed to recover six pounds of cigarette tobacco. It technically belonged exclusively to Musgrave and Reynal, but they divided it equally between the five of them. The only kind of cooking instrument they had, for now, was a small iron tea kettle. Henry Forges, the cook, offered to boil some fresh water for tea, but no one had flint or a tinderbox to start a fire. Then, Henry cried out in epiphany. He felt around in his pockets and produced a box of fusees, wooden matches with extra-large striking heads. They produced a larger flame than regular matches so sailors could light their pipes in the wind. They were wet from the ocean, but still usable. He sent George Harris to collect whatever dry kindling he could find. Henry struck the first match next to the small pile of twigs, but it fizzled out, smoking without igniting. He tried another, and another. After the fourth match failed, Henry tried to dry the matches off. On the fifth try, it ignited. Soon the kindling crackled to life. The men huddled around the small fire, protecting it from the wind and continuing to feed it with twigs. Soon enough, the flames were large enough to put the tea kettle on. They warmed themselves with a cup of tea and each had some ship's bread. 
Restored by this, the men collected as much dry wood as they could find around their tent. They stacked it next to Reynal and tasked him with keeping the fire alive. He was still recovering his strength, so laying by the fire was about all he could manage anyway. The rest of them set out to investigate the surrounding area. They hoped to find a cave or some other kind of natural shelter to escape the elements, but it was another fruitless search for Captain Musgrave. The group returned to the tent in less than an hour, soaked from the rain. They sat around the fire in despondent silence, the air thick with gloom. Eventually, 20-year-old George Harris could no longer stand it. He told the men he regretted surviving the shipwreck. Drowning at sea was better than starving to death here. Henry Forges agreed, piling on. Auckland was a secluded island rarely visited by other ships. They'd die long before any other crew arrived to give them aid. Reynal, trying to repair morale, reminded them that Uncle Musgrave and Charles Sarpy promised to send help if they didn't return after four months. They just had to survive until then. But Musgrave scoffed bitterly. Even if they followed through on the promise, Uncle Musgrave had no way of knowing they were on Auckland Island instead of Campbell Island. The rescue ship would look for them in the wrong place. This cruel realization broke Musgrave. He moaned, Ah, my poor wife, my poor children, what will be their fate if I am not restored to them? Then he broke into tears, sobbing into his hands. The other men were struck silent at the outpouring of agony from their captain. After a few moments, Reynal mustered enough strength to stand. He told the group, we must not allow a moment of trial to unman us. We are men. Let us prove it. For my part, I have faith, and I am of the opinion that we should use every exertion to render our condition here as comfortable as possible until our friends send us assistance, which will not fail to arrive. He reminded them that much of the Grafton was still intact on the rocks, they could harvest the wooden planks, canvas sails, and sturdy ropes and use them to construct some kind of shelter. They had a good store of food. If they could get out of the elements, they would survive long enough to be rescued. Musgrave, purged of his emotions, quickly agreed with Reynal's plan. They would return to the shipwreck and collect building materials. He still wasn't convinced his uncle would actually send rescue. But if help was on the way, he was determined to be alive when they got there. Up next, the crew navigates the perils of Auckland Island. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. 
And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story. On January 2nd, 1864, the Grafton and her five-man crew shipwrecked on the rocky shore of Auckland Island. Captain Thomas Musgrave, who had suggested they detour to the island on the way back to Sydney, despaired at their fate. But his partner, Francois Reynal, held on to the hope that their benefactors, Uncle Musgrave and Charles Sarpy, would send a rescue ship once they failed to return by the agreed-upon date. He was dedicated to surviving until help arrived. To do that, they needed to build a shelter. Using the dinghy boat as transport, the crew harvested building materials from the wreck. They ripped out wooden planks from the deck, collected the nails, and took down all the supporting canvas sails and their ropes. They also recovered additional tools, a couple of pickaxes, two iron spades, an axe, a gimlet, an adze, and a hammer. Musgrave picked a spot in the woods close to a freshwater stream for their building site. First, they cleared a small space to pitch their makeshift tent, fashioned from the mainsail. Until the cabin was built, that's where they'd sleep and store their supplies. The men laid down some of the wooden planks as flooring so they wouldn't have to sleep in the mud. Then they built a new fire at the entrance of the tent. As they had discovered the previous night, biting sand fleas emerged in swarms at dusk. They hoped the smoke from the fire would act as a deterrent. Reynal, still too ill to help with the build, resumed his post beside the fire, making sure it would never go out. He also made dinner for the group, boiled salt beef, ship's bread, and tea. After they ate that night, Musgrave and the three crewmen fell almost immediately to sleep, exhausted from the work of the day. Reynal, on the other hand, laid wide awake, listening to the strange sounds of the island. Dozens of sea lions trampled through the surrounding forest, returning to their nests for the night. Reynal described, I could hear the voices of the females calling their little ones. Every now and then, the loud roar of a male could be heard. Then, a confused noise of crackling plants and panting breath and hoarse coughs rose all around us. The crashing and grunting woke up the other men. They jumped to their feet. Alec grabbed a pickaxe and Musgrave a club-shaped piece of firewood. They raced out the front of the tent together, ready to beat off the intruders. But once outside, they found two gigantic male sea lions, eight feet long, embroiled in a fight. The bulls didn't even notice the crowd of men watching the ferocious display. They continued ripping at each other with their tusks, drawing blood. Reynal recalled, their lips trembled with rage. These monsters opened wide their enormous jaws, displaying the most formidable tusks. 
Eventually, George Harris and Henry Forges voiced their concerns that the fight might get out of hand. They worried one of the bulls could end up foundering into the tent. So George plucked a branch from the fire and tossed it in the direction of the sea lions. The bulls immediately recoiled from the flames, letting loose angry roars. The sailors held their breath in the face of the colossal animal's rage. But then the bulls trudged away into the woods, taking their skirmish away from the camp. The next morning, January 5th, 1864, dawned without a cloud in the sky. This was a rarity on Auckland Island. Because of its proximity to the Antarctic Convergence, it typically rains over 300 days of the year. Knowing what a boon a clear, sunny day was, the men decided to take advantage of it. They formed a hunting party. Musgrave and the three crewmen set out into the woods in search of fresh meat, armed with firewood clubs. Once again, they left Raynal to tend the fire. Their prey had the advantage in the thick shrubbery of the landscape, able to slide underneath the low, spiny branches. The hunters struggled to navigate through the underbrush, which was so thick it obscured large holes in the ground. They had to move slowly or risk breaking an ankle in an unseen crevasse. Before they left Sydney, Musgrave had consulted with a friend who was an experienced seal hunter. The friend advised him to club the seals on the thinnest part of their skull, between the eyes. It was the quickest death and wouldn't damage the pelt. Musgrave didn't care about ruining the fur, but seeing as his only weapon was a club, the tip came in handy. Reynal reported that the hunting party was gone for less than an hour before he heard their cries of victory echoing through the woods. But once they managed to kill a roughly 120-pound seal, the men were faced with transporting the meat back to the tent. Luckily, Musgrave brought the axe so he could dress and quarter the sea lion. Each man took a portion and strapped it to their backs. With the added weight, they didn't want to try to go back the way they came, through the thick vegetation. Instead, they took the long way, walking down the beach. They knew they'd be able to find the camp using the shore and the shipwreck as a guide. However, it was indeed the long way. In some places, the sandy beach gave way to sharp, rocky cliffs. They had to wade through the ocean, fighting against a strong current. When they eventually arrived back at the tent, Reynal described them as bent double by their burden, their clothes soaked in seawater and besmeared by the still steaming flesh of the seal. But once they'd washed the blood off in the stream and dried their clothes by the fire, the entire group was revitalized by the successful hunt. They had enough food for at least the next three days. They could turn all their efforts towards building the cabin. Musgrave suddenly had a vision of sea lion stew. He knew that somewhere in the hold of the Grafton was a large iron cooking pot. There were also the makings of a feast, potatoes and pumpkins. His stomach growled. Retrieving the pumpkins from the wreck was especially important. They were the only kind of seeds the men had with them. If they were forced to cultivate their own food, pumpkins would be their only option. Musgrave recruited Alec and George for the retrieval mission, and they headed to the wreck, renewed with purpose. 
Henry and Reynal stayed behind and started breaking down the sea lion meat to cook. Once they'd cleaned one of the quarters, they seasoned it and strung it up to a tree branch, letting it smoke over the fire. Every so often, they'd rotate the meat, making sure it cooked evenly. They also took a few measures to address the dampness inside their makeshift tent. It had been assembled during the rain, and the water was still trapped inside. First, they moved everything out of the tent. Then they took down the canvas and picked up the plank flooring. They laid it all out in the sun to dry. Reynal also suggested they light a fire on the ground where the tent had been to further dry out and harden the dirt. By the time they'd completed this task and reassembled the tent, the other men returned from the wreck with more supplies. It was even more successful than they'd hoped. In addition to the large pot, they brought plates and utensils. Musgrave happily found the ship's compass, though it needed to be repaired. The other men retrieved as many empty glass bottles as they could. They also recovered everyone's trunks. They quickly unloaded the contents. Thankfully, they all now had more than one change of clothes. They draped the wet items over branches, allowing them to dry. In Reynal's chest was a pistol, though it was already covered in rust. But luckily, the tin cases of gunpowder had all made it through the ordeal completely dry. In Musgrave's trunk were several tools, a metal barometer, a Fahrenheit thermometer, a watch, and a sextant. The watch was stored in a box with a tight seal. In all the chaos of the wreck, it hadn't even stopped ticking. There were also some marine charts and books, though all were soaked. In the meantime, the smell of the slow-roasted sea lion quarter filled the campground. Rather than wait for the stew, their stomachs stirring from the aroma of roasted meat, the men decided to eat it immediately with ship's bread. The hours of smoking had turned the meat completely black. Reynal cut off thick slices for each man and eagerly filled their plates. They hurried inside the tent to eat. But all of the excitement and hope that had filled the crew all day evaporated with the first bite. The oily meat was, frankly, disgusting. Reynal wrote in his autobiography, the black, coarse, oleaginous flesh, which was as little agreeable to the smell as to the taste, did not appear to us a very satisfactory repast. But we felt we must accustom ourselves to it. If this, the flesh of a young animal, was so repugnant, what would be the case when we were compelled to make use of that of the old? Around the circle, the men silently forced themselves to swallow their meal. Musgrave wondered how long they could possibly survive eating only this rank gristle. If he'd known the answer to his question, and how many months on Auckland Island laid ahead, he may have considered the alternative, starving to death. Instead, for the next 18 months, he would lead his crew through some of the most harrowing experiences of their lives, all in the name of survival. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week with part two of The Wreck of the Grafton. 
we'll explore how the crew navigated survival on Auckland Island and the drastic action they took to find rescue. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Survival was written by Abigail Cannon and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. 